0: Today's text comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. And the word of the Lord says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was yet who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity, and a striving after wind. The Word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You can all be seated. Every week, as we've worked our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, we've had a theme for each passage of text. And when we started this walk through Ecclesiastes, we covered with the first 11 verses of this book the big overarching theme of the book. And that big overarching theme is this. Don't just think in the now, because now will be gone soon. Focus on forever. That's what really matters. Remember God in everything you do. Enjoy life and enjoy God. And then we learned our second week, true joy comes not from our striving, but from God's giving. And then, no matter what circumstance the moment finds you in, God is in control of that moment. Uh, I like the way... A pastor named Dustin Binge framed that. He said, the world is not falling apart. It's falling together into God's sovereign plan. And then last week, the theme was, here's the good news. Life isn't fair. We're a people who long for justice to be done, right? If somebody does something wrong to us, we like for something bad to happen to them. We think that's fair until fair starts happening to us. And things start happening to us. So what we talked about, how it is life isn't fair. That God doesn't give us what we deserve. So that brings us to the theme for this week's passage. And it is, relationships matter in life, and relationship matters for eternity. Relationship matters in life, and relationship matters for eternity. And we're going to start right at the beginning and unpack our text... Looking at verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after win. We have an intense desire in our culture to be noticed. When I was a kid, people kept five or six photos of their family in their wallets. And they would proudly show them off when conversation about their family life came up. Now, today we have a thousand photos saved on our phones and a thousand more that we share on social media. Uh, But it's not just photos of our kids. This is the age of the selfie. We wanna show people proof that it really is me who is at the beach. It really is me who has a new car. It's my kids showing off their trophy or their achievement. It's me pumping $5 gas. It's me that voted. It's me who lost this weight or drank this drink or used this product or spent the morning working out. We live in a world that is ultimately connected through social media, but even though we have these quote unquote friends on social media, our lives are very me focused. We look at social media and we see the highlights of other people's lives. We see the lake selfie and the happy kids selfie and the smiling selfie and the the sunglasses on the beach selfie. And we want those Instagram moments for ourselves. We have a desire to feel superior or at least equal to others. We want to be successful. We want to be able to buy clothes not because we need them but because we want them. We want to be able to own a certain type of vehicle, not necessarily because we need a new car, but because we want a new car. Whether or not we say it out loud, whether you're posting a picture from your vacation, or your kid's playing ball, or your kid's getting an award at school, we want attention for ourselves. And that includes me, right? I posted some pictures yesterday of my Reagan because it was her 10th birthday. And I've probably gone back three times to look and see who commented on those. We like to feel that attention. Uh, I tell people all the time that I believe that men who become pastors do so because of two reasons. One, because God has placed a high calling on their lives. Two, is because they love to hear themselves talk. They like being the center of attention. And whether or not we want to admit it, uh, our motivation behind our efforts we make in life, a lot of the time is envy of others. If you don't believe it, you ought to go to a meeting with pastors sometime, right? Tim's experienced this before, I know. You go to a meeting with pastors, and the first question somebody's going to ask you is, so what are you guys running on Sunday? And if they're like us, and they have 30 or 40 people on a Sunday, maybe on average, uh, they're going to look down and to the left, which is the universal sign for I'm about to tell you a lie, and they're going to say, 80 to 100. And if they actually run 100, they're going to tell you 400. And it goes on and on like that. We want to have others thinking that we have. We want to look uh, uh, to to uh, see what others look like and be liked for the same things they're liked for. We want to experience what we believe others are experiencing. Funny, nobody ever takes a selfie and posts it online of them arguing over who's going to load the dishwasher. Nobody ever takes a selfie of themselves at the doctor's office and says, I've got this rash I've had for three weeks. Well... <laughs> I take that back. Sometimes people do take that selfie and post it online. Uh, but envy and rivalry, whether or not we want to admit it out loud, is a driving force in all of us. As an author and pastor named Scott Sauls who ind- identifies these four warning signs of envy. He says, if you enjoy the sound of your name more than you enjoy the sound of the name of Jesus, you might have an envy problem. If you value and invest more in appearances and place less energy toward growing your moral character, you might have an envy problem. If you possess a a public persona that is completely different than who you are at home, you might have an envy problem. If you envy the success of others, if you rejoice when others mourn and you mourn when others rejoice you might have an envy problem. But the difficult byproduct of envy is a lack of inner peace. You'll never feel right envying others. Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. So envy is this really individualistic, self-centered approach to life that causes us to look at other people as rivals, people we have to get ahead of instead of companions. And you can try a million things, a a new car, a new clothes, that magical amount of money that will make you happy, a new house, a new spouse, uh, winning the biggest trophies. But if your end goal is satisfaction of self, you will never, ever be satisfied. Solomon is teaching us that envy is like chasing after the wind. And then he goes on to verse 5 and he says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now Solomon was just discussing, uh, well now Solomon is discussing the opposite of someone who envies others and strives to keep up with them and get ahead of them. He's talking about lazy people now. The lazy person who doesn't have any desire to achieve anything. And it's another self-centered approach to life. When Solomon talks about someone who folds their hands, he's implying that it's an individual that lies back and folds their hands across their chest and sleeps. Or someone who sits and watches with hands folded when it's time for them to labor. My mom used to talk about an old man that lived in the community when she was a kid. And he had been married four times and he had 21 children. And when it would come time to pick cotton, all 21 of his children would be in the field. And he would sit on the porch and watch them pick. And she said she remembers sitting on the porch with him and her father. And he looked and it said, man, picking cotton is hard work, isn't it? Now, when we use the word fool, we mean someone who's acting like an idiot or being ridiculous. But the biblical meaning for fool goes deeper than that. A fool in the Bible is someone who denies God and who scoffs at at the wisdom of the Bible and laughs at eternity. He gives no thought to the eternal ramifications of his actions or his lack of actions in life. Foolishness in this context is a way of... uh, It's more than just saying somebody is funny or flippant. It's a theological stance. It's utter contempt for God's law. God intends for His people to work. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Paul also wrote in Colossians 3.23-24, and 24, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that the, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So not only are we supposed to work, we're supposed to work passionately, representing Christ in everything we do. Whether we're flipping burgers, or painting masterpieces for museums, or fixing leaky pipes, or doing open heart surgery, or driving a van to pick up kids on Wednesday nights. We're to do our work with excellence. When Solomon writes that the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh, he means that a lazy man consumes himself... Because he's consumed with himself. Keith Krell wrote, God wants you to know that there is glory in the grind. Shrug off laziness. Work like today is your last day of work, for it just might be. Work with excellence, with eternity in mind, like you're working for Jesus himself. Step out of this me-centered mindset and into a new way of thinking about your work in the public sphere and your work in the church. Verse 6. Solomon wrote. Better is a handful of quietness. Than two hands full of toil. And a striving after the wind. Solomon is describing a life. With one handful of work. And one handful of rest. He wants us to live a balanced life. Some things matter. More than other things. The amount of money. That you have from your overtime. Cannot replace the time you missed with your family. In the same way, the temporary satisfaction you get from the pleasures the world offers you can't replace the eternal satisfaction that's offered through Christ. The cure for discontent is to be willing to settle for less of what the world says you should strive for and more of what Jesus has given to you as a free gift Jesus says in Matthew 11:28Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest Jesus doesn't call us to work to earn eternity but to work with passion because of gratitude for the gift of eternity and to appreciate those small sublime moments in between to be gracious for the grace of of the life that God has given you. And keep eternity at the forefront of your mind. Be diligent, but be content. God has given you everything you need. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then you have eternity to look forward to. So enjoy work, enjoy rest, enjoy life, and enjoy God. Verses 7 and 8 says again i saw vanity under the sun one person who has no other either son or brother yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am i toiling and depriving myself of pleasure this is also vanity and an unhappy business so solomon has talked about two self-centered approaches to life an envious approach In verse 4, a lazy approach in verse 5. And now he's going to hit on a third self-centered approach to life. An approach to life that prioritizes riches over relationship. John Piper once preached a famous sermon called Seashells. And in it, he talked about a couple who worked and worked and worked. And they took early retirement when he was 59 and she was 51 and they moved to Florida and they spent their day walking the beaches collecting seashells. And he said of this, Piper said, That's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. But doesn't that sound like what we want, right? Do any of you really, who are still working, do you really want to work until you're 65? I don't. I'd love to retire on the lake or in the mountains or at the beach and just walk and collect seashells. And there are those among us who are spending tons of energy and tons of money to get to that point, to have that lifestyle. But Piper, he pleaded with his listeners and said, Don't buy that dream. Because in the end, you'll stand before the creator of the universe with what you did and say, here it is, Lord, my seashells." He said, don't waste your life. He quoted a poem by C.T. Studd and said, only one life that will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The way to not waste your life, Piper said, is to give God glory for every gift. Because everyone, from your new car to physical safety to your next heartbeat, is grace that is bought and paid for through Christ on the cross. We are busy people. We work so hard to accumulate things and climb ladders that we forget the most important things in life. God is not going to be impressed with the amount of money or clothing or cars you've accumulated. None of that matters in the scheme of eternity. And none of those things will ever satisfy the hunger inside you. So let me ask you all a question. Are you really taking time to enjoy your children and your grandchildren? Are you really taking time to enjoy your closest friends? Are you really taking time to enjoy your church family? Because, see, this Christian life is intended to be lived out in relationship with other believers. And in the next few verses, Solomon's going to teach us this basic principle that relationship matters, that two are better than one. Now this is a counter-cultural idea in our world because our world says to focus on yourself. But Christianity operates outside of this self-centered approach to life. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment." So operating outside of relationship with other believers, if you're a believer, is selfish and foolish at best. In creation, the first thing God said that was not good was that man was alone. God has created us to live, work, play, celebrate, and mourn alongside others. Scripture never says, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It says two are better than one. And Solomon goes on and he gives us four examples of how two are better than one. How relationship matters in this life. In in verse 9, it says two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. So he's telling us two are better than one when you're working. My grandfather was a sharecropper and he was one of nine siblings. My grandmother was one of ten siblings and almost all of them were farmers. So when cotton would come in, gathering the crop was a family affair. And my grandmother would tell stories about how 20 or so family members and friends would come to their home early in the morning to begin picking cotton to take to gin. And she and her sisters and sister-in-laws would make 10 gallons of sweet tea and, and five gallons of banana pudding and copious amounts of meat and vegetables and biscuits for the men to have for lunch. And once the fields were gleaned, the process would begin again at the next family member's field. No one had to pay them or entice them to work. They knew that if they didn't work together, their families wouldn't eat. So not only were they cultivating a crop, they were creating meaningful life. They were working together toward common goals through doing hard work together. And there are all types of hard work we do. Getting an education is hard work. Building a business is hard work. Having a marriage built around faith is hard work. Raising children with good values and knowledge of Christ is hard work. Maintaining and growing and caring for those in your church community is hard work. It takes effort. Anything meaningful in life is going to be the result of hard work and toil. The text is teaching us that you can accomplish more when you're working in relationship with others. You get good reward for your toil. Two are better than one. Relationship in this life matters. Then Solomon in verse 10 says, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. So he's telling us two are better than one when you're in trouble. You never know what type of trouble might show up on your doorstep from one day to the next. We've had a series of plumbing issues at our house, so Nick has been on speed dial for advice and help for us. But this passage is about more than someone to help you when you have a leaky pipe. If you're talking in the context of Christianity, we're talking about the communion of saints, the family of Christ, the church, as a support to each other in times of trouble. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, we've all heard it before. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, it's important to note, the passage does not say, let us think about going to church on Sunday so that the pastor can stir us up to do good works and encourage us. It says, stir up one another. It says, don't neglect meeting together. Encourage one another. Meeting together increases your love and compassion for each other and stirs you up toward acts of love and compassion for each other and out of your self-centered life. I've heard a million times, I can worship God from my deer stand just as good as I can at church. I can worship God at the river just as good as I can at church. I can worship God at the ball field just as good as I can at church. I can worship God in my truck just as good as I can at church. And you know what? It's true. You can worship God wherever you are. You can. But a solo approach to faith is a self centered approach to faith. And Solomon is directing us away from self centeredness and showing us the value of relationship. If you read the New Testament, there is no context for Christianity outside of the church, it is not God's plan. That you have to work out your problems on an island and sort out your sorrow in isolation or to worship somewhere in a cave. God's command in Galatians 6, two, and this is a command, is bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So whether you have a health problem or a relationship problem or an addiction problem or a sin problem, whether you are old or young or married or single, God's plan is not for you to have to fight through the difficult times of life alone. If you are going to obey this law of Christ, this command of God to bear each other's burdens, then you have to have consistent, close, trusting relationships with the individuals in your church community. Otherwise, you won't even know what the burdens are. And if you aren't engaged in church community, the church won't know what your burdens are. We need to lift others to lift us. We need others to lift us up and help us to share in our joys and in our pains. God works through the body of Christ. The church, to build up and strengthen His people. Two are better than one. Relationship in this life matters. And then Solomon writes in verse 11, Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And what he's saying is two are better than one when you're spiritually cold. Now, the obvious route here is to think in literal terms and think about two people caught in a snowstorm. And they huddle together to survive. But remember though, Solomon is using the book of Ecclesiastes to provoke us to a deeper spirituality and a stronger relationship with God. He spends most of this book talking about the things he tried to satisfy him and make him feel complete. But at the end of his life, he understands that only God can satisfy a man. And he sums up his book in Ecclesiastes 12. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. The end of the matter, when everything said is done, is this. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So Solomon is provoking us to move from a me-centered life to a Christ-centered life, a life on fire for Christ. So in Luke 24, there's a scene where there's two followers of Christ who are walking on the road to Emmaus. And they're defeated and depressed because Jesus, whom they put all their hope in, had been crucified. But then they encountered the resurrected Christ together and he explained to them, he preached to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets and all the Old Testament scriptures, that his purpose was to be crucified for the sins of man and raised from the dead so man could enjoy an internal relationship with God and that he was the fulfillment of all prophecy. In Luke 24-27, it says Jesus pointed out to them that everything in the Bible, even the Old Testament, points to Him. So these two followers of Jesus hear the Word of God together, and their response in Luke 24-32 is this, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? Then they go to Jerusalem And they gather with other disciples to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. What set their hearts on fire, or in the language of Augustine, what captivated their affections was hearing Scripture together and sharing their joy with other believers, making Jesus the center of their attention the same way Scriptures do. Notice, it doesn't say that after they heard Jesus preach this sermon, they went home separately and prayed about it. It didn't say that they went back to work the next day and then waited to see if church might fit into their schedule the next Sunday. They immediately go out of their way. They're walking towards Emmaus out of Jerusalem. But they immediately change directions and go back to Jerusalem. And they gather together with other believers to celebrate Jesus and to worship. The great English reformer Thomas Cramner said the purpose of gathering together to worship is to be more inflamed with the love of God's true religion. So the goal of gathering with other believers is to get warm and have your heart set on fire. Now, I know life has a lot of demands. And I know it's hard to fit things into your schedule. Gathering with other believers and making Christ the center of of your attention in corporate worship. But if we neglect that gathering to have our our fire rekindled, if we choose other options, then all we are doing is warming our behinds on the throne of our own tiny self-centered kingdoms. So we enter into relationship with other believers and we sing songs that tell us about the incomparable attributes of God and the enduring value of knowing Christ. And we say creeds to remind us of what we believe and we pray prayers together and confess our sins together and we read and hear scripture together and we warm our hands together at the fire of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's the fuel that keeps the fire for faith burning inside you. If you take two hot coals and you put them together, they'll get even hotter. But if you separate them for too long, they'll become cold. That is why it's so important for the church to meet together. Two are better than one. Relationship matters in this life. And finally, in verse 12, Solomon says, Says, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold uh, cord is not quickly broken. He's saying, two are better than one when you experience difficulty in life. Friends hold each other up in adversity. We need other believers to give us strength when we go through hard times. When Solomon writes a threefold cord is not quickly broken. He's saying there's strength in numbers. Sometimes we have burdens that we just can't bear on our own. Some battles you can't fight on your own. Some problems you can't solve on your own. Some attitudes you can't change on your own. Some habits you can't break on your own. Some needs you can't meet on your own. And you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, I don't have any burdens I need anybody to help me bear. I don't have any battles that I need anybody to help me fight. I don't have any problems I need anybody to help me solve. I don't have any attitudes that need to change. I don't have any habits I need to break. Uh, I don't have any needs that need to be met. if you can't admit your need for Christ, and the body of Christ, I'm going to be frank with you. I wonder if you know Him at all. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you don't hunger and thirst for Jesus, I wonder if you know Him at all. The promise of Christianity isn't that you will never have problems if you're a part of a a church. The the, The promise is that you don't have to face those problems alone. Two are better than one. Relationship matters in this life. Verses 13 through 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon is teaching us here that wealth and popularity don't make you a winner. And poverty and failure don't make you a loser. There's nothing wrong with working hard to make money and get ahead. But Solomon is teaching us that a material life, an envious life, a self-centered life, is a life that will come and go like the wind. We will live and die, and in a generation or so, we will likely be forgotten. Three weeks ago, I talked about how a church was founded in 1800, and I ask you, because I know a lot of you are proud of the heritage of the church, and I am too, I ask you, who was the first pastor of the church? Does anybody remember his name? Who said that? William Davis. Was that Casey? Who said that? Oh, Ray, Ray King. Uh, uh, Casey Cooper's going to give you $20 for remembering that, right? Just three weeks ago, we talked about him, and most of us have forgotten. He's a very significant figure in northeast Georgia. He helped found Sarepta, the Baptist organization. He planted at least four churches in the Madison, Oglethorpe, Elbert area that all still persist today. He's a revolutionary war hero. He's largely forgotten. We live, we die, and we're forgotten. So what is really important in life? Solomon spelled it out in Ecclesiastes 12. I said it earlier. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You're created to have relationship as a priority in your life. And no relationship is of greater importance than your relationship with God. Your relationship with Jesus. Relationship matters in this life and relationship matters for eternity. Charles Spurgeon once said, There is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. Union with Christ is the center of our salvation and our growth as believers and the key to the deepest joy you can experience in this life and in eternity. The relationship with Christ is so uniquely bonded, so close that Scripture refers to that connection over and over as being in Christ. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So our relationship with Jesus begins in the mind of God even before the world is created. Ephesians 1.6 says that we receive grace in Christ. The gift of being saved from our sins comes through our relationship with the Christ who died for our sins. Ephesians 1.7 says that we have redemption in Christ. This relationship with Jesus purchases us from the power of death and sin and Satan and rescues us from our own poor choices and moral failures. Philippians 3:9 says that we have righteousness in Christ. This relationship between you and Jesus gives you a righteousness that isn't your own. You can't earn your way into good standing with God through your own efforts and your own good works. Christ offers you a clothing exchange. He takes off your sinful garments and wears them on the cross and is punished for what you've done. And Christ clothes you in His righteousness so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see the message you've made of your life, but instead he sees a child that he loves. Romans 8.1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Being in relationship with Jesus means that you don't have to fear God's judgment anymore, but instead you can enjoy God forever. Being in relationship with Jesus means moving the focus away from yourself and placing the focus of your life on Christ. No matter what station life finds you in, no matter what pleasures the world offers, only relationship with Christ will give you eternal satisfaction. You can achieve anything. You can buy anything, you can experience anything, you can win anything, you can post selfies of anything the world has to offer, but none of those things can purchase eternity for you. Alistair Begg preaches a beautiful sermon called Blind from Birth, and in it he talks about the relationship between Jesus and the thief on the cross that begged for mercy. And he said, I always think about this in relationship to the thief on the cross when he arrives at the portals of heaven. He said, can you imagine the interview process? He said, the angels say, what are you doing here? And the thief says, I don't know. And he says, well, who sent you here? And the thief says, "I, no one sent me here. I'm just here. And the angel says, well, do you understand the doctrine of justification by faith and sanctification? Do you have peace with God? And the thief says, I don't know. I, I don't know. And the angel says, well, how, how do you even get here? And the thief said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Yes. Tim McDonald introduced me a while back to the idea of a turtle on a fence post. You don't know how he got there, but you know he didn't get there by himself. Two are better than one. Relationship matters in life, and it matters for eternity. The only way to heaven is through relationship with Jesus. The only way to heaven is if the man on the middle cross says you can come. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. If you need Jesus, I'm going to invite you to come today and we'll pray together. If you need your flame restored Come and pray. If you need Jesus, come.